Ladies and gentlemen, it's 1973, an absolute boom for Disney filmmaking. Or is it? Is it in fact a subpar era for Disney animated filmmaking? That's what we're here to find out in our latest instalment of Robin On, the Robin Hood Raven On subsection podcast recap analysis thing. Looking back at all of the Robin Hood films, well, most of them have skipped a few, but we'll explain why. Uh, I am Natalie Bohensky, the host of this thing, and with me, as always, in the driving seat, we, we share the driving seat. <laughs> analogy is steering off, off track already. Uh, is a man who is always up for putting on a bit of a furry costume with no pants and going out <laughs> to seduce some maidens at a Ren Fair. It's Stuart Lace. Hello, Natalie. Hello, everyone. Yes, that that uh, analogy is apt. We've both got one hand on the wheel and we're pulling furiously in different directions. <laughs> well, we have a third wheel tonight, and I mean that in the most positive way. I was just trying to keep the motor car running. Uh, please welcome, from the Best Pick Pod, a man who knows everything about everything, including James Bond, Doctor Who, and now Disney, from London, it's Tom Selinski. Hello there. <laughs> that's, a, that's a hell of an introduction. That's a, that's a lot to live up to. Well, it's true, Tom. And I just want well, to say at the outset, congratulations on your book being published. Thank you very much. Yes, available now wherever books are sold. Best pick, A Journey Through Film History and the Academy Awards. Available as a hardback, Kindle or audio book, if you'd like me to read it to you or us to read it to you. Oh. Do like you offer that as a personal pod. service, Tom? Can someone uh, hit you up? and? <laughs> Uh, yes, that's right. That's you have to read hustle. it through. And- yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you have to read it all the way through every time someone purchases the audio copy. It's done live. <laughs> yes. Well, we are here to talk about the Disney version of Robin Hood from 1973, which I think for a lot of people is a beloved childhood film. Certainly is for me. I dare say Stu as well. But Tom, what's your history with, I guess, Robin Hood films in general? Do you have opinions? Uh, and then let's talk about this Disney one. I don't have strong opinions about Robin Hood. I'm kind of here as the Disney nerd. Uh, ah. So I think I, I, I've definitely seen uh, the, um, uh, the, Errol the, thir- the, thir- the 30s one, the Errol yeah. Flynn one. But I only saw that because I needed to do some best pick research. Uh, and uh, I was a student when the, the Kevin Costner one came out. And I remember uh, it being on. I remember that dreadful song clocking up the charts for weeks no, on end. No, I remember I'll it being on, on I'll TV. I'll stop you right there. I'll stop you there, Tom. I've got a lot of respect for you, Tom. I've you nearly got, got past respect. it, Tom, but she, she's, she's, she's airtight. You can't get past it. <laughs> I, I will I mean, hear nothing against uh, Brian Adams. Anything can be played too many times. That's all <laughs> yeah, well... That is true. And if you were me, you played it multiple times over and over on your Sony Walkman after you bought a bootleg copy of the soundtrack in a Polish flea market. And that's how you learnt all the lyrics. (laughs) (laughs) True story. True story. Wish I still had that rip-off bootleg tape. Oh, do you remember the days when you would buy bootleg cassette tapes of (laughs) albums? It was like $3 in a Polish. Actually, it wasn't even that. It was probably like a dollar in a Polish market in 1991. Memories. Uh, but yes, yeah, so, so, but culturally, Tom, culturally, Robin Hood is part of your cultural heritage. Yeah, I guess. And I actually, I remember my parents reading me the book when I was very small, or, or one of the books, certainly. Uh, and uh, so I, I kind of 
grew up knowing all the iconography, knowing about uh, the quarter star fight with Little John and mm. splitting the arrow in two, and being very upset at uh, the uh, the final scene in which um, somebody um, shoots an arrow wherever it lands. That's where Robin's going to be laid to rest. Uh, not a feature of the Disney version. No, no, uh, but, uh, nor indeed any version that I've seen. Oh, really? No, that's that's the bit that kind of stands out for me from whatever uh, novel version it was that I was being read to out of. Yeah, uh, that would stand out. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, so yeah, Disney, definitely, then. definitely part of the culture. But Disney is something which uh, I've I've always been absolutely fascinated by the ability of a person with a pencil mm. to create a character and bring it to life. It just seems kind of like magic. And mm. for much of the history of movies, that meant Disney. Mm. Uh, they really were the only game in town, certainly where feature animation was concerned. Uh, Warner Brothers and MGM uh, were doing good work in shorts, uh, but it wasn't until the 80s and Don Bluth that Disney had any real competition in feature animation. And ironically, this film had a lot to do with that. <laughs> a bit to do with that, yes. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, it's the first okay. film on which Don Bluth gets a credit. He'd been at the studio since I think the mid fifties, but if you only did little bits and pieces, you didn't get a credit. I think the rule was if you contributed more than a hundred feet of animation, then you got a credit. Okay, well you're going to have to tell me who Don Bluth is because that's not a name I've ever heard before. Oh, so in the uh, do you know a film called uh, The Land Before Time or The Secret of Nim? I've heard of The Land Before Time. Oh no, I saw it as a kid. I yeah. think. Yeah. Or an American yeah, tale. So American tale, Fievel Goes West. Uh, so Don Bluth was an animator who joined Disney, I think, in the 50s. And uh, in, the, uh, in the 80s, Disney was losing its way. Uh, this film is actually kind of the beginning of that process. But by the early 80s, it had really lost its way. People weren't showing up to see the films. Critics didn't rate them. And Don Bluth led an exodus of Disney animators. <laughs> Away oh, from wow. the studio, set up his own studio, uh, did the, the world's first profit-sharing agreement with animators, and for a while, certainly critically, uh, was eating Disney's lunch. Ah. Uh, but Disney uh, came back with the Disney Renaissance in the uh, late 80s, early 90s. So that's with where like the, the Little, Little Mermaid and Aladdin. Yeah, 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 exactly. So I need to tell you just what happened just now. Um, for those who are maybe not following along, I have house guests here at the moment one of which being uh, Dan Beeston from the Smart Enough to Know Better podcast, sometime occasional guest on this podcast. And he and his lovely wife, Aurelie, are currently staying with me because their house got flooded in the Great Brisbane Deluge of 2022. Uh, so you were just talking about Don Bluth. I just happened to say out loud on mic, I've never heard of the name Don Bluth before, to an <laughs> outraged response from Dan Beeston, who is, of course, an animator, cartoonist, illustrator type of guy. So I have uh, obviously offended Dan again. Uh, you don't deserve to have a pop culture podcast. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds Natalie like you might be spending this weekend watching a number of animated films. <laughs> uh, yes, I hope everybody at home heard that. Uh, Dan has now left the room. Uh, I can only assume to plot my demise. <laughs> Doesn't a he always? Of creative ways. Uh, so yes. So my apologies. How uh, boring to Dan. you think you'd already seen everything? Exactly. Well, true, true. But <laughs> Dan seems to think that I posit myself as some sort of expert, and therefore I've never be, noticed that. Indeed. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Tom. I appreciate that. <laughs> Thank you. I will tell not, Dan. Not your, not your shtick, Natalie. <laughs> <laughs> 
always say I'm here to learn. I'm here to grow. I'm here to learn alongside other people who, who don't know. Um, so this is the thing. We're doing Robin Hood, but this is our little animated detour. And I don't know that much about animation. I am going to admit to you I've never seen The Little Mermaid. Oh, Sorry, Dan's wife film. now just looked at me outraged. Okay, I've now offended the whole family. Now, well, well I, uh, I, I should have made an audible gasp there because, come on, Natalie, really? <laughs> now, I've seen bits and pieces. I've seen the uh, the songs, some of the songs. The um, I mean, you can definitely like sort of pick it up through cultural osmosis. Like there's, yeah, I mean, there's things I that just sort of trickle out. I literally have the Under the Sea song as a joke in our show Titanic the Movie the Play. <laughs> Um, it's when the captain calls for the band to start playing. They start by singing Under the Sea, you know. <laughs> it'll be so much better down there where it's wetter. It's a fun gag. It's a great gag. Um, sorry to people who died on the Titanic, of course. Um, but <laughs> I have seen Aladdin and I love Aladdin. So if I can just claw some points back, that's my sure. favourite Disney film is Aladdin. It's genius. Love it. But I just never got into well, The Little I, Mermaid. Shall I do like a 120-second version of uh, how Disney got to Robin Hood? Please. I would love you to do that, Tom. So people carve Disney films up into these eras. So 1937 is Disney's first and the world's first cell animated feature animation, Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. And they just rattle out classics after this. Pinocchio, Fantasia, Dumbo, Bambi in about four years. Then the Second World War hits and there's about half a dozen films which no one's ever seen, which are just (laughs) shorts packaged up together with titles like Make Mine Music and Fun and Fancy Free. And also Song Uh, of the South, which uh, no one's ever seen because they keep it locked up. (laughs) That's right. That is uh, in the the Disney vault for all sorts of horrible reasons. I have Uh, read a fair bit about Song of the South. There's an excellent podcast called You Must Remember This. That's right, yes. She did like a six-part series about Song of the South. It was really, really interesting, and I would encourage you to listen to it. 1950, Disney gets it back together, gets some cash together, and puts out Cinderella, and this begins the Silver Age. These are all the kind of Disney classics you think about. So it's Sleeping Beauty and Lady and the Tramp and 101 Dimensions and Peter Pan and all these great movies. And that era comes to an end in 1967 with Jungle Book, which is the last film that Walt Disney personally oversaw because he died in late 1966. Oh, okay. So now the studio is trying to regroup without its leader. They put out the Aristocats in 1970, and now we come to Robin Hood in 1973. And this is going to lead us all the way to The Black Cauldron in 1985, widely agreed to be the nadir of Disney feature animation, certainly until... Uh, the 2000s. What is The Black Cauldron? The Black Cauldron is an attempt to do Disney but darker. Uh, So it's an adaptation of a fairly obscure series of fantasy books and it's just one of those movies where nothing quite clicked uh, and nobody turned out to see it. But also they were doing kind of one film at a time. The reason that in the 90s they were able to put out film after film, basically a film every year, is they had three in production at any one time. Right. But at this stage, they're basically starting work on one when they finish the previous one. So the Aristocats was begun under uh, while Disney was still alive, while they were finishing up the Jungle Book, but no work had begun really on Robin Hood. So this was the first film which was created from the ground up without Disney himself being there. That's interesting because the first thing I noticed, obviously, when the film began is that his signature was different. You know, just in the opening credits when they was like, Walt Disney presents, it wasn't the... The, the beautiful curvy font that we know and love, the very stylized Disney. I don't think that was created in 1973. Ah. He never wrote his name like that. That's a logo that was designed by somebody. I think it was designed in the 80s, but I don't oh, know for I sure. Oh, I see. 
Really, that that, that signature logo. Yeah, yeah. No, he never wrote his name like that. It's 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 not. It, it's a kind of a, a corporatized version of how he wrote his name. Right. Okay. It's so you're saying I couldn't dissimilar. go? I couldn't go down to the bank and just sign some checks with that. Because <laughs> you know it's it's pretty easy to replicate if you if you try. Good point. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think I think that became the logo sometime in the '80s, but I'm not absolutely sure. Uh, I, I'm, I'm certain if we were to look, we'd find a YouTube video going into that in minute detail. <laughs> well, then, Tom, um, do you want to try to describe the plot of this Robin Hood for us? Well, no, because it doesn't have one. <laughs> uh, <laughs> a lot it, of it, Disney films of this period are kind of loose assemblages of scenes. You can definitely say that about The Sword of the Stone. As wonderful as it is, you can definitely say that about The Jungle Book. Uh, I don't know mm. if, you, if you, Natalie, have, have, um, have now, you seen listen, The Jungle Book? I, <laughs> I think I have, but it would have been as a kid and I don't remember it. Okay. But I think well, I have. Watching The Jungle Book again, one of the things you notice is you watch the first sort of 40 minutes and you go, this is brilliant. This is just fantastic. This is all the songs I remember. What's in the second half of the movie? Uh, and in the second <laughs> half of the movie, they just basically just do all those songs again because... <laughs> They were good the first time, so why not? But then actually, kids the have a short attention book, span. They probably will turn off the, after forty-five the, minutes anyway. <laughs> the end of the Jungle Book has some of the most astonishing animation acting I think you'll ever see. When Mowgli goes back to the human village, it's just absolutely beautiful. But this, like a lot of these films, is just kind of an assemblage of scenes. So there's a bit at the beginning where Robin Hood and Little John uh, rob. King John, and then there's the archery contest, uh, and then there's quite a long scene uh, where they try and steal all of King John's gold, and then we're just told in narration at the end that King Richard turned up and <laughs> made everything go away. He, yeah, the rooster, Alan Adair, literally says, well, uh, the sheriff turned up and just really sorted it out. Yep. So there you go. No need to make that. Why bother? Yeah. Uh, and it's actually, it's not, it's not even like it's a terribly short film. It's the, I think it's the, the longest film since Fantasia in terms really? of Disney feature animation. Yeah. Usually they were about like 70 minutes. This is 85. I thought it was because the animation was, has that really slow quality to it. You know, where everything's very soft and, you know, faces, people's facial expressions take about five seconds to, you know, become. <laughs> there is some cost cutting evident. Uh, now, this is still, it's not like Top Cat or uh, the Flintstones. It's not limited animation. It is still <laughs> proper feature animation, but there's two kinds of cost cutting. One is just like, what do you show? Uh, and so there are things like, uh, I noticed actually in that um, climactic scene, there's that uh, camera shake, which is a bit Hanna-Barbera, mm. uh, when people slam into walls and so on. And there's also, this is a film which is really kind of infamous for reusing animation. So taking over from Walt Disney as the kind of creative lead is a man called Wolfgang Reitherman, Willy Reitherman, who is one of Disney's nine old men. Have you heard that phrase before, Natalie? I have not. So these are the animators who kind of figured out how to do Disney-style animation. You look at the very early Mickey Mouse cartoons, compare that even to Snow White in 1937, and you can see in all sorts of ways there's an increase in sophistication. There's better acting, uh, but there's also a greater feeling of depth and solidity. In the early Mickey Mouse cartoons and before, characters' arms and legs were just sort of stretched all over the place. But what Disney wanted was to draw characters that looked real and solid, and you could see them mm. from all angles, and they wouldn't appear to change their volume as they made different gestures or walked or ran or whatever. And there's all sorts of principles uh, going into this. So Wolfgang Rutherford was one of these nine old men who invented all this stuff. I think 
I think this might be the last film to have all nine of them working on it. I'm not absolutely sure about that, but it's certainly about this time they're deciding to peel away. And then by The Fox and the Hound in 81, that's the last one with any of the nine old men involved. Wow. Uh, but um, Ritherman was a uh, sort of proud of his encyclopedic knowledge of Disney classics of the past. And if on the storyboards he saw a scene which resembled a scene from an earlier film, he would say, why don't we just go and pull that bit of animation out of the archives and you can draw over it yeah. with the new characters. So there are bits of the Aristocats in here. There are lots of the Jungle Book because Little lots John of the is, Jungle Book. <laughs> yeah, is Baloo even? It's even the same voice actor. There's bits uh. of uh, even bits of Snow White. And uh, opinions vary about why this was. Some people say it was just cost cutting, but a lot of the animators said, "Look, by the time we've gone to the archives, found the bit of animation you're talking about, traced over it with the new characters, we could have just drawn it afresh." So it might have been sort of insurance. I know that bit of animation is really good and works. Right. And there's no yeah. such thing as VHS, let alone DVD or Disney Plus. So no one's going to be able to compare these two. So why don't we use yes. what we know works rather than trying to draw something fresh and run the risk we might have to do it all over again? They didn't foresee two hour long YouTube videos painstakingly <laughs> pulling apart the animation run cycles. They did not. Uh, we can talk about the kind of how the film works as, as a story and as a piece of art in a second. But the last thing I wanted to mention was xerography. Okay, another word. So this I is also this is also the scratchy era of Disney. Uh, everything from 101 Dalmatians to about mm, the Rescuers, the Fox and the Hound, has this kind of scratchy look. So this is how you get a piece of feature animation in the Disney style. An animator draws the character, and they draw maybe like three or four frames a second. They draw the key frames, okay? And then a, another animator comes along and looks at frame one and frame six, and they draw frames two, three, four, and five, just following the lead hmm. of the lead animator. They're right. called in-betweeners. And then somebody takes those pencil drawings and turns them into clean animation. So these are the cleanup artists. And then those are traced onto clear cells. And then those cells are turned over and a whole other team paints the reverse side. And now you have a piece of color animation. And you do that at least 12 times a second if you're shooting on twos, 24 times a second if you're shooting on ones. And was this and shot this on twos or ones, this one? I think this is mainly done on twos. Yeah, it feels like it. Yeah, I, th yeah, I think so. What do you I was, mean I was by gonna, twos and ones? Sorry, It means that just... you shoot every frame twice. So okay. you halve the number of frames you have to draw per second of animation. Ah, okay. And you can still so, get pretty fluid movement shooting on twos. Uh, something like uh, Who Framed Roger Rabbit was all was all done on ones, because uh, when it's integrated with live action, shooting on twos would look very weird. Yes, so that's why you get that sort of slow quality to a lot of the movement. Yeah, just that's. Oh. Yeah, I mean, you can you can still have characters move across the frame fast, but uh, you don't get quite as fluid a movement. Right. Uh, so then Disney bought the rights to 101 Dalmatians. Now, drawing 101 Dalmatians is <laughs> a pretty back-breaking piece of work for an artist. But this was the early days of the photocopier in American businesses. And so I think it was Ward Kimball, one of the nine old men who was a technical genius, began talking to the Xerox company about could they make a version of their machine that would photocopy pencil drawings onto clear cells. Now, okay. uh, they were able to make that work, uh, and that has one benefit and one drawback. 
The drawback is that whereas previously they'd been able to draw outlines in different colours and have this very soft, thin line, now it just had to be black or white. It had to be there or not there. So the line becomes very hard, but this also eliminated the cleanup and tracing. So it was the animator's own drawings, their own pencil drawings that were being directly photographed onto these Xerox cells. So a lot of people do prefer this because it has a kind of liveliness that the uh, the more sort of um, polished Lady in the Tramp, Sleeping Beauty style doesn't have. But it does have this scratchy quality. And then the, mm. the process gets refined and they are able to do Xerox in different colours and uh, pick up finer details, and then eventually from rescuers down under, it all goes digital. Uh, so that's the other thing that is about Robin Hood. But it did mean that they could do things like reproduce the same character multiple times just by printing multiple Xeroxes, or even print at different sizes. So a character walking off into the distance, you could just animate one walk cycle and then photocopy it smaller and smaller and smaller. All those kind of things were suddenly available to them. Okay, so new tech. Yeah. How does it become scratchy, this word it's scratchy? Because you're, you're taking a pencil drawing and photocopying it oh. so in some cases you can even see some of the construction lines oh, uh, but see. it just has if you if you just if you go back and look at peter pan say or lady in the tramp it has a much the, the lines around the characters have a really kind of fine clean quality but you look at the jungle book or or this film and you can see that the line around the characters especially when they're doing things like fur it just kind of feels scratchier. Oh, I guess I yes, I guess I can kind of see that. It's more defined like black lines around them. I'm just yeah. looking at Google images compared to Peter Pan. I yeah, okay, I see what you're talking about. All of the animals in Robert are very very sort of thick dark outlines around them. That's right. Mm. I mean, it's not bad. I guess it's just different. It's a taste thing. Yeah, apart from everything else, yeah. Exactly. Mm. Some people prefer it. Well, that the animators is... loved it. The animators loved being able to see their drawings on the screen as opposed to their drawings having been cleaned up and then traced. Ah, uh, always. Yeah. Okay. So they're like, I, I literally, that is my work there. It's yeah. not just been taken and then processed. It's right in front of you. And then did that, Tom, do you, do you know, I, I think they kind of went away with that when Don Bluth sort of split away. He went back to a lot of sort of very in, labor intensive hands on stuff, didn't he? He sort of got away. I think from that's right. Yes. Thing. Yeah. Yeah. So, so weirdly, weirdly, he was sort of going, hearkening back to an older Disney style when he sort of broke away, whereas at the same time, Disney was putting out films that they were sort of Xeroxing on. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> is, that a, is that a cost-cutting thing as well? Like, is it cheaper or quicker? To it's definitely cheaper, yeah. I, I mean, I'm, but, you know, pity the poor um, ink and paint department because half of that department just lost their jobs overnight. Ah, hmm. uh, yeah, of course. Always a downside to capitalism. <laughs> it's the march of progress. Yes. Um, well, that's a fantastic introduction, and we've got so much to dig into, but I thought it might be good to do our minute challenge. Absolutely. Uh, so you and I put a minute on the clock. Tom timed us. I think it's my turn to go It's your. T- it's definitely your turn. I went, I went t- first okay, last cool. time. All right. Well, I'm going to read out some things here, and you can tell me what you think. The first thing is... I don't want to hear any more complaints ever again about <laughs> Kevin Costner's accent in Robin Hood Prince of Thieves because 75% of characters in this movie have American accents. And Strong I in- American accents, yes. I include in that the fact that, and this, I mean, maybe it's the person, I didn't see the credits roll, but uh, whoever is playing the Sheriff of Nottingham, the wolf, is basically Sheriff J.W. Pepper from Live and Let Die in 1971. <laughs> I mean, tell me I'm wrong here. Tell I me actually I went and wrong. checked to make sure it wasn't the same actor, but I don't think it is. <laughs> oh, so no, you, you had the same thought. Pat Buttram. 
Uh, also heard of the Rescuers and the Fox and yes. the Hound. He has quite a distinctive voice, and so does um. De- yeah. I thought I thought for some reason I don't know why because they're in the same movie, but for some reason I thought the guy who does the voice of Friar Tuck was the same guy, but it's actually two actors with very distinctive <laughs> whistly yes. voices. Yeah, so there's a couple of reasons for this. One is just sort of Disney's lack of interest in uh, fidelity <laughs> to the source material, uh, and they mm. will just do whatever they like. You know, they they stuck a gopher in uh, Winnie the Pooh. Uh, they have no interest at all uh, in that kind of thing. But also there was consideration given to doing Robin Hood firstly in the Wild West. Uh, and you can see <laughs> glimpses of that in the sheriff's like Wild West star yeah. badge thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, and in the Deep South. And, and it was only uh, the uh, controversial nature of Song of the South that steered them away from that. Uh, <laughs> and so this was like a, a crater decision. It's like, Shall we set this story in, um, oh, I don't know, I mean, Nottingham? <laughs> <laughs> give that a whirl. Oh, my God. Uh, yeah, it's a crazy so there's idea. A lot of, it just might work. So they're, 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 they're going back to a lot of things that have been proven to work. Phil Harris, yeah. this is his third appearance uh, in three movies. He's not only Baloo in The Jungle Book, he's Thomas O'Malley in The Aristocats. Okay. And obviously Sir Hiss is a, a riff on Carr, but with a different voice actor. Uh, on who, sorry? And uh, Carr from The uh, Jungle Book. The, the oh, snake right. from The Jungle Book. Yeah. Oh, I see. Yeah, it's, yes, say, it's, basi- it's basically the same model. Uh, so there's a, there's a lot of playing it safe here and, and going mm. back to voice actors they've used before and ideas they've used before. So, yes, <laughs> this is not the most authentic version of the story you're ever going to see. And look, and I'm fine with that because it, you know, how can it be? But I, I just, I was watching this and then I heard Little John and then all the others and I thought, you know what? I'm just going to not take, because one of the things that people always say is me, they love this movie and it's much better than the Kevin Costner version. And then the first thing I always say is that, well, he couldn't do an English accent. And I'm like, get stuffed. <laughs> Get out. If that's going to be your only criticism, just go. That's I'm not taking any more <laughs> crap about Kevin Costner's accent. Ever. Done. Have you heard that radio interview where the uh, the presenter has a go at Russell Crowe for his accent in Robin Hood? Uh, and he ends no. up kind of getting getting so worked up that he walks out of the studio. Oh, Russell, Russell Crowe Crow Yeah, he keeps coming back to it. He says, Can't we just go back to that thing about my accent? <laughs> <laughs> wow. Except wow. he, he would have been saying, like, "Mate, can we go? Can we go back to that thing about my accent, please?" Mate, <laughs> yes, mate. I just want to bring that. I just want to circle back. Uh, <laughs> just want to circle back to my accent. Um, really, where do you get off? Yeah. I'm surprised mm. he didn't throw a phone. To be honest, <laughs> I, don't, I know a while back Russell Crowe, um, someone had a go at Master and Commander on Twitter. And oh, yeah, and he acted up know, on Twitter. Yeah, yeah. And it's really good if you want to fall asleep and you've got insomnia. Mm. And Russell Crowe actually saw this tweet and responded and said, it's a great movie, it's a wonderful, you know, adventure, it's of this style, great director, fabulous actors, you know, I defend it. And everyone kind of took sides, I think, or, or, or at least I don't think he was being snarky. He was just kind of going, you know what, I'm sticking up for this film. I quite enjoyed Master and Commander. Funnily enough, I have seen it. And I, I remember sort of quite enjoying it for what it was. But I sort of thought, Stu, you, you reckon we could get Russell Crowe on when we get to the Russell Crowe Robin Hood? <laughs> I mean, look, shoot, shoot for the moon, Natalie. If He's we the, want to put it on Twitter. Put it on Twitter and, and maybe yeah. maybe like yeah, like neg him a little, like like just sort of say that he was kind of a bit shit and maybe he can come on and tell us otherwise. I mean, I don't I don't know if I want to get on Russell Crowe's bad side. But if I just sort of was like, <laughs> Hey Russ, hey big Russ, uh Rusty, looking, come on, mate. 
We've been praising you to the stars for your performance as Jor-El in the Henry Cavill Supermans. You know, we've been giving you a lot of credit. Come on our podcast and talk about the whole Russell Crowe because there's a really interesting story that I'd love to know more about with his movie, which we'll get to, which is that it was originally going to be a Robin Hood in reverse. Robin Hood was going to be the bad guy and the Sheriff of Nottingham was going to be the hero trying to take down this Mm, terrorist. I've heard that, yeah. And Russell Crowe was going to play the Sheriff of Nottingham and it was going to be this cool, and I was like, how is that going to work? And then all of a sudden a year passed and it changed and all of a sudden it was a traditional Robin Hood story and he was going to be Robin Hood. Yeah. So I'd love to know the background of that. So I reckon, I don't know, I reckon we, yeah, as you say, we neg him on Twitter a bit. We just dangle it and go, listen, Russ, <laughs> I know you're a big megastar. I know you're a big Hollywood actor. But if Tom Selinski can make time for this podcast, <laughs> surely you can, Russ. Come on and tell us about it. Wouldn't that be a coup? Wouldn't that be a coup? I mean, look, it would be, yes. <laughs> Russell Crowe comes on small-time podcast to defend accent in Robin Hood movie 12 years <laughs> after the fact. It, look, it would get a BuzzFeed story written up about it, that's for sure. Absolutely. They're always, they're always looking for random people's appearances on podcasts, <laughs> turning it into a clickbait. All right, I'll move on with my list, though. But that was my first thing. Uh, my second question to you, gentlemen, is, is this the movie that invents furries? Well, this is I had this on my list too. Uh, oh, really? Look, maybe. There's several theories that uh, this may have influenced a generation. <laughs> really? Because I, I was sort of half joking with that, but I, I don't really know much about the history of the furry movement. Uh, this is the first Disney film with an all-animal cast. Uh, there aren't very many of them. Can anyone, anyone name any other Disney film? Animated Ooh. film with an all-animal cast. Is it really? Because I was about to say Lady in the Tramp, but of course that has like the, the nope. chef and things and, and yeah, the owners exactly. and, and that sort of thing. So, yeah. Jeez. Oh, uh, the Aristocats, maybe? Oh, it's Bambi. Bambi, nope. I guess, would have a... Although there's Bambi the hunter has in that. The hunter, exactly. So, yeah, yeah. No, no kind of speaking roles, but definitely ah. humans play an important part in the plot of Bambi. Sure, yes. Oh, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the Aristocats cars? is... Cars? Cars? Uh, that's Pixar. That... Oh, okay. So, so there's a differentiation between... Disney, Pixar, and then Disney, Pixar. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so was this, was, Brown this was the next first? Was yeah, Brown next Bear? one after after this is The Lion King. Oh, God, of oh, course. Of course. And then I think the only other one is Zootopia. And Zootopia, yeah, which was Zootopia. heavily heavily influenced by this movie. It was, yes. Really? Was it? How so? The director of well, Zootopia uh, cites this as one of his favourite Disney movies when he was growing up. Aww. And also the design of the animals in that is very similar, especially like the fox yeah, character. Yeah, fox, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Okay, so they're just paying tribute to the uh, in, in the essential horniness of foxes. <laughs> exactly. Yes. As far as sexy animals, foxes are right up there. Like, what's what's next? Do you after have a urban fox? foxes in Australia? Uh, we do. We do actually. Yes. Uh, not, yeah, we do. They're, they're not not often seen, but they they are around. Yeah, they're a fairly frequent sight in uh, in London. Really. Ooh. Just foxes getting around the joint. I, <laughs> yes. I mean, I, I suppose it was a major plot point of Fleabag, so yeah, there you it go. must be there for a reason. Well, I did want to say in, in terms of I found it very strange with the beginning of the film when uh, they sort of show a book, as so often movies like this do, they open an ye olde book and have ye olde calligraphy. <laughs> and it says King Richard went on crusade and Robin Hood defended the nation or the village of Nottingham, whatever. England seems to be located solely in the village of Nottingham in this film. But it has a picture of a man, Robin Hood, in this book. I don't know if you noticed that, but it says, you know, here's Robin Hood and it's got a picture of a man shooting an arrow and then it cuts to Alan Adale saying, well, you know, in the animal then, kingdom, we have our own yeah. version. So is that saying that humans exist as well in this world? 
and that the animals then just have their own parallel history with all the same major figures. I don't think you want to pull on that thread too hard. Yeah. <laughs> no, I started going down a deep loop of, but wait, but what does that mean? It just was a strange, like, why did they feel the need to do that? Why, why couldn't he just say, it just be like, yep, and here's Robin Hood and it was the fox and why do they need to, it was this strange half acknowledgement of a human world and the animal world existing right next to it. Yeah. Well, I think partly it was because they'd, they'd done this thing, which they hadn't done before, of just recasting a story about humans with animals. Ah. Uh, it, previously, they've, they've either picked animal-centric stories, like Lady of the Tramp, and then the, the animals are animals and the humans are, the, are humans, yes. or they've told a story with humans and it necessarily invented a supporting cast of animal sidekicks. Yes, uh, that's like, right. Yeah, uh, Cinderella. It makes a lot more sense now that you say this was the first one with an all-animal cast. They were like, are people going to believe that these animals are these historical characters? <laughs> are and people it's, it's really funny, going to suspend Gr- their disbelief? Hmm. Yeah, like, I mean, growing up with The Lion King, like it just seems like the most natural thing in the world to then go back and watch Robin Hood, like a, the, the Fox version of Robin Hood. But yeah, yeah, it's weird, isn't it, to think of them having to justify that. It's like, oh, yeah, we know there's a human version, but this is the animal version. But just going back to Robin Hood's uh, hotness, because he is hot. I mean, I'm not, I'm not like no shame to the furry community. I mean, look, we'd all go there. That's, that's them, absolutely true. Yeah, if this is what inspired them, I understand why. But why, like, how how did they write him to be so good looking and like a perfect harmonic blend of masculine and feminine features? <laughs> <laughs> like he is the true kind of almost like he's he's incredibly manly but almost genderless in that very non-threatening kind of way i feel like a lot of young girls might have felt very safe with this definition of masculinity and, and a few young boys probably but i, oh, I do yeah, wonder course, if sorry. it's but but i do wonder if, it, if it's if it's that disney thing of like removing a lot of the overt sexuality of it mm. has sort of like landed them in a very strange liminal space yes that's right <laughs> look there were more than a few times when i looked at some of these animals and was like there's no way that two foxes that were keen on each other would just be strolling through waterfalls there was you know what there was a lot of sexual imagery when robin and marion were having their little love moment they're like walking past walking past waterfalls and walking through caves there was just a lot of jungle based <laughs> forest based <laughs> metaphor but i do, in in relation to that scene just while i mention it when it occurred on the tv uh, because the the next thing on my list actually it, it, it ties in so much of this movie so many of the lines like triggered deep childhood sense memory oh or, yeah like just the Prince John going this crown gives me a feeling of power power like <laughs> all of a sudden I went oh my god I'm like seven again it's funny how that I haven't watched it in over 20 years this film probably yeah 20 25 years and just those lines came back and I was like oh my god this is Deep, deep, deep in my brain. Well, did and you have did, Natalie? Did you have this movie on uh, VHS, or did you uh, like like how did you how did you watch it back in the day? I cannot remember, but I suspect I might have taped it off the TV. I was going own. to say because you know how what we had was we had a taped version that we had taped off the TV and done that mm. thing where you cut out the ads by oh. stopping the tape recorder and then start it again. And you had to be really quick to get it yep. back because you know you had to press double press two buttons. You couldn't yep. just click. A, you know you had to hit the and and I don't know about t- I think it's pretty similar but on free to wear TV in Australia typically before the show came back there would be an ad for the network like coming up yeah next, so you so you'd know Sunday. it was about to fit the ad break was about to finish yeah so you'd get ready and you'd hit you'd sit with the either the remote control or right next to the the machine with your fingers on the buttons and you just 
depress, depress. So you wouldn't have to fast forward through the ads on rewatching. You know, this. the kids today, guys, the kids today don't know what we had to do to make our own mixtapes and our, our, keep our own media libraries. They I didn't have this on VHS. It was, I think, the first VHS that Disney put out. Certainly, again, the first of its feature animations. They had such a lucrative business re-releasing their films in cinemas. They were anxious about uh, putting them out right. on VHS at all, but they they gave it a go with this one, and so because it was the first, a lot of people kind of grew up on it. But I didn't, and I have to say, I don't really rate this one. Watching it again mm. last night, it, there were some things which actually really pleasantly surprised me. And you know, it's it's Disney feature animation. There's a there's a limit to how bad it can be, uh, and mm. some of some of this stuff is really charming and really well done. But it just sort of meanders a bit. Uh, and in yeah. particular, I think the although Peter Ustinov is very good fun as King John. He's such a weak and ineffective villain. The stakes never clamber above sort of middling because uh, the first thing we see is how easily outwitted he is yes. by Robin Hood and Little John. And so therefore, yeah. So I think even, even compared to the films either side, neither of which are seen as classics, uh, I think Robin Hood is pretty weak. And certainly compared to The Jungle Book, which is so iconic, hmm. uh, mm. it's, it's a bit kind of, just a bit less interesting which is a shame. But I totally get why people who only had this <laughs> uh, would have fallen in love with it. Because, you know, and apart from anything else, you are just less critical at six years old. Yes. Uh, and then when Definitely. you watch it as an adult, you're not watching it with the, the critical eyes of adulthood. You're watching it and you're being thrown back to how enchanting it was when you were six. <laughs> there, is, there is definitely a huge element of that for me. I, I, I have no objectivity with this movie because I watched it about a thousand times when I was six years old. <laughs> I mean, I can still see, as as you point out, like there there really isn't. I do see it more as that episodic. Here's a little adventure. Here's a little adventure. Um, but then, so are so many of the early. I mean, like the even the uh, Errol Flynn version is is kind of episodic. Like there's true, things happen true. in certain, you know, the little little sketches sort of happen, and, and there's a, a, a threading plot through it. A lot of a lot of the because they're based on the folk tales. Like until they sort of streamline the story. Mm. Um, and we get some more modern films. Like, they really are very episodic, a lot of these movies. I think for me that this one has two madcap chases. So there's the madcap mm. chase after the archery tournament, and then there's a madcap chase after Robin busts out everyone from prison and steals the gold. So they're very similar on a repeat viewing. But as a kid, it's slapstick and funny, and you probably yeah. wouldn't notice that. It was just as an adult I went, oh, this is almost exactly beat for beat the same kind of chase scene because you can't you can't really have fight scenes the way that a live action Robin Hood would have a fight scene you know because you don't no, want so to this see... is basically Robin Hood and Little John uh, outwit King John uh, there's a big chase uh, and then they sing a song about how easy it was to outwit him and you do that, you do that three times and then that's yes. 25 minutes <laughs> yes exactly exactly <laughs> So the yeah, and it's a shame that he doesn't. You kind of don't really get to see how Prince John. I mean, the only reason I suppose he became the you know king usurper king is because his brother buggered off. So yeah, it was just a, a vacuum gap that he slithered into with the help of his slithery snake friend. But yes, I'll just finish off my list because I don't have too much more. Oh, my next thing was actually so many madcap chases. So that's tick. <laughs> I, I love sort of again just going back to that whole oh they're animals not humans. But you, you can see them sort of struggling with the whole how do we do some of these gags, but they're animals. So at one point Lady Cluck, someone grabs her sort of butt and pulls down <laughs> her feathered bottom to reveal, you know, purple underpants. 
Yeah. But it's like, but she's a chicken on the bottom. But, she's not. Yeah. She's not. <laughs> like, she doesn't have any pants. Like, really, you should have had the pants on, pull it down, and that would show a feathery bottom, but then that would be seen as showing off her actual bottom. On Disney. I suppose there's, like, weird, can we show a bottom of an animal if it's the equivalent to a bottom of a human being? And in a similar vein, when Robin when Robin is competing in the archery tournament and he dresses up as a stork and he, he, he has sticks for stilts and he has a big fake beak that he straps on, but then he's got these feathered hands. Like he's shooting arrows with feathered hands, which one assumes are gloves, but that implies that he like killed a bird and took its wings to make feathered, <laughs> <laughs> feathered hands out of. I think you can pluck a few feathers out without having to actually well, slaughter the bird. Yes, I know. I, I, thought you, I thought you were going to point out that he has he has feathers over his hands, but uh, his his hands presumably would be paws, which lack opposable thumbs in any case. This, well, this, is, the, his uh, this is fox. Yes, this is the other thing about this archery contest. You have all these sharpshooters firing arrows, and I actually wrote down in my little notes. I was like, but but animals don't have opposable thumbs. <laughs> it's the whole reason why. Uh, it's the whole reason why they're not, uh, you know, kings of the animal kingdom. That's uh, and that's, that's kind of where why... Natalie draws the line. <laughs> oh no, no, no! I was, I, I wrote it down as sort of a humorous. Uh, yeah, yeah, they don't have opposable thumbs. Yeah. I, I have other things from my my taking notes through the through the thing, which I'm sure will will pop up. You know, including the the very so much use of American. What in tarnation are you doing here, you bird brain? And, Gee, gee, Hosafat, put that down. Like so much just Southern, I don't know if that's Well, it's very much, I mean, they they ended up not making it a Western, but they kind of just made it a Western anyway. That's the weird thing. Because it has, it's a sheriff, which kind of lends itself, but then like Friar Tuck's a preacher and like the the town is very obviously like a Western town. And obviously Um, all the music is is, uh, Western music, like it's it's folk music. Yes, it's all this like country, like Alan Adale seems to be sort of a feathered Woody Guthrie. Well, it's Roger Miller, who was a, a, a... folk singer like country singer i'm afraid i did not know that my apologies (laughs) to mr miller but i just wanted to write in conclusion for my minute challenge is um you know in life and i don't know if you guys sort of feel this but as as a woman you go through (laughs) life and sometimes you you sort of feel like you're the main character like you're the maid marion you know that you're kind of the the beautiful elegant sophisticated you know doesn't put a step wrong you're that one you're you're made marion and then you realize when you're watching a movie like this <laughs> that in fact somehow you are not made marion maybe you never were but certainly now you're lady clark <laughs> And you I mean, look, realize, you know, you know, is that the is that the transition that I've made at a certain age that I'm now the the sort of the bouncing, jolly, possibly Scottish chicken lady in waiting who's going, oh, I'll get you, you scurvy prince, and just kind of bouncing villains off her. I mean, look, belly and, Lady Lady Cluck is having a hell of a time in this movie, so you could yeah, do look, worse. Like, no shade to Lady Cluck. Lady Cluck is the MVP of this movie. Lady <laughs> Cluck. Single-handedly, like American football gridiron style, mows down a row of rhino soldiers. <laughs> but yeah, I just sort of had this realization. I was watching this, going, "Oh, it was it was kind of a what's that Doctor Who moment? I'm the Tin Dog. It was like that. I'm I'm, <laughs> yes. I'm the Lady Clark." <laughs> now uh, I'm uh, I'm aware of how this tends to go, Natalie, uh, when you're asked a question which begins with the words "Have you seen." <laughs> <laughs> 
but have you seen the film The Odd Couple with Jack Lemmon and Walter Matthau? I have not. I'm sorry. Or seen the play? I, no. I have seen The Apartment with Jack Lemmon, and I <laughs> I've saw I saw a lot of those grumpy old men mo- movies that they did together in the 90s. That is interesting, but uh, irrelevant to my point, which is <laughs> sorry that about halfway through The Odd Couple, two characters turn up who Matthau hopes will be romantic interests for him and Jack Lemmon, two English women called the Pigeon Sisters. And they're played by Monica Evans and Carol Shelley. Monica Evans and Carol Shelley had been a pair of geese in Disney's The Aristocats. And they turn up here as Maid Marian and Lady Cluck. Oh, wow. That's really interesting. And is one of them like the nice pretty one and the other one's the more like, get down here, I'm going to give you a big kiss, you big lug. (laughs) No, actually. In uh, The Odd Couple, they're both kind of indistinguishable, twittery English women. Okay. Hence the Pigeon Sisters. Hence the Pigeon Sisters. Yeah. So uh, yeah, Carol Shelley, I think definitely given more room to stretch herself as Lady Cluck. It is very, very, it, like it's a very fun role. Don't get me wrong. And I do love the little scene where the kids, again, no real reason except to introduce Maid Marian, who's possibly, you know, the most damselly she ever is in any of the Robin Hood films. Mm-hmm. I don't think she has any agency at her or she's just got big weepy eyes and at one point Robin says I owe my life to you Marion and it's because she begged for his life but actually it was little John holding Prince John at knife point who actually saved his life <laughs> anyway um, that's basically my list uh, so over to you Stu and uh, let's keep discussing Robin Hood yes absolutely well the first item on my list is because again this is a movie that I saw when I was six about a thousand times. Um, so every single song in this movie is like imprinted on my brain. I'll sometimes just be walking along, just whistling that to myself, like and realize what I'm singing. Uh, I hope you you're know. sort of. I hope you're doing like the uh, little John Strutt with the arms either side of you, just that kind of. Oh like yeah, happy I mean that's just that's yeah. just me normally, you know. <laughs> Um, I've, 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 I've very. I've, I've got uh, big little John energy. I think is uh, is my thing. <laughs> Did you notice though that the opening song that's sort of under the credits at the beginning is like doop dee doop do 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 because that, that was I playing. know that song well. Yes. Well, Dan walked out and went. That's the hamster song. Yes. You know, yes. It's it's the hamster dance. Yeah. So they. <laughs> yeah, just repurposed. Yeah. Thought that was worth pointing out. <laughs> Yeah, no, I, I, I thought the, I mean, obviously, uh, it's nothing on the Disney Renaissance, but the, the songs in this uh, really kind of tie it together. I think, like, like thematically, like, and just having that, those motifs sort of play throughout the film. I think it does a lot to sort of string together what is, as you rightly point out, Tom, like a, a series of sketches. Like, it's just a series of happenings that happen, but throughout it all is this music sort of tying it all together. I think it does sort of go a long way to sort of making a cohesive film. I tell you what, though, if the the Alan Adale song where they're all in jail and it's just a montage of yeah. animals being tortured in jail. If you were, if you didn't like animals, that's, that's going to be a fun scene for you. Cause it's just, <laughs> it's, it's poor rooster singing about how put upon everyone is. And you've literally got animals with giant chains around their neck, like <laughs> raccoons on a chain gang. I mean, I didn't know that medieval England had chain gangs, but there all they raccoons. are. All raccoons. <laughs> Or rhinos, or crocodiles, or <laughs> hippopotamuses. 
And elephants. Or foxes and hens who are best friends. That's right. Yes. Yeah. But yes, Oodalali uh, is a, a repeated a lot by Robin Hood as some sort of triumphant call to Oodalalio. And I guess, I guess it's better than hey, Nonny Nonny. Like, <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's a little bit better. The next item on my list is uh, Robin Hood and Little John, which is sort of interesting. It's it's like a two hander. This one. It's it's not uh, Robin Hood and his Merry Men. It's very much Robin Hood and Little John as his sidekick. Oh yeah, there's no Will Scarlet. There's no Will Scarlet. There's not really any. There's no no Merry Men. There's Alan Dale who's just sort of a wandering minstrel in this one, and there's Friar Tuck who lives in the village in the and, and is sort church. of the, the village priest. Yeah, uh, with, with church mice, literal. With church mice, yes, church exactly. Mice. So yeah, that it's an interesting uh, wrinkle. I I know I, I've read that. Uh, in production, they sort of wanted it to be more of a buddy thing, like Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Oh, God. Um, have that sort of energy. Like, like you know, they're, they're two outlaws that are sort of running from the law, thumbing their nose at authority, that sort of thing. Um, but also, I, I imagine... I, trying to, to recapture Mowgli and Baloo from the Jungle Book. Exactly, yeah. It's very much... It's it's like a, a hangout sort of vibe. But, but also, I, I imagine it definitely cuts down on animation <laughs> that they have to do. To not have uh, hundreds of uh, merry men in Lincoln Green running yep. around. <laughs> the next one on my list, uh, I just wrote down quickly: walk cycles as just a, a, non, a nod to the um, animation in this. Uh, just because, uh, as you mentioned earlier, uh, Tom, they, they were obviously trying everything, every trick in the book they could to sort of cut down on animation. One of which, which is quite noticeable, I didn't really notice this a lot when I was a kid, but watching it now, it's so very obvious that, like, even within the film, they reuse animation. Like it's stuff that happens at the start of the film is reused later. And even the, the vocal performances, which surely wouldn't have been that hard to get like a couple of extra lines out of people, but there are literally like lines that are repeated that are very obviously just played a second time. Um, so there's a lot of like corner cutting in this one <laughs> that I didn't ex- notice the first time around. I didn't notice that. Do you have an example of... The big one that always sticks out to me is um, when Ustinov, as Prince John, says, Hiss, you're never around when I need you. And he says that twice in exactly the same cadence. It's very obviously the same, like, uh, little little take. thing. And then later on, when Little John says, uh, says hey like as like a like let's go like it's the same it's the same thing and there's a couple of other little ones throughout the thing it's not like big long extended stretches of dialogue but it's definitely Mm. like little yells and and exclamations and things that are very obviously the same it's like they've just hit a note on a soundboard Mm. instead of getting them to just do it again it could be as simple as they didn't know that they needed it uh, well that's true time the other thing to bear in mind is until the 90s until jeffrey katzenberg came along there were no scripts written for animated films so story Storyboard artists would develop the storylines and the sequences, and then eventually they would they would somebody's job would be to add the dialogue, and then that would be typed up and given to the actors. But there was no document which began the creative process, wow. which described what would happen at, at each stage. That just wasn't the way these things were done. That's and so incredible. things were often very fluid. Uh, you can't do the animation until you have the vocals recorded, sure. but it's it, it all still kind of emerging. And I think there is a story that they wanted enough to come back and record some extra dialogue. And they rang his home in London and couldn't find him. They rang his agent who didn't know where he was. <laughs> uh, and uh, they were panicking because they were running out of time. Then it turned out he was uh, shooting a film at the next door studio. In Los oh my Angeles. God. <laughs> He's an interesting fellow, Peter Ustinov. I've, I've not seen him in a lot, but I remember he did these documentaries later in his career where he would, he would meet historical figures. Like he'd be taking you around a, a castle in France 
and he'd be going up a staircase and he'd meet Charlemagne on the way down and then they'd have a conversation <laughs> in French about a particular point of Charlemagne's reign and they'd sort of discuss, they'd sort of talk it out because he sp- I think he spoke French and German so he was constantly having historical meetings with historical figures in documentaries which as a kid or a teenager I was like this is weird but cool <laughs> He was Blake Edwards' first choice for Inspector Clouseau. Did you know that? I did not know that. Yeah. He dropped out kind of at the last minute and uh, Peter Sellers got on a plane. And so it's because Peter Ustinov dropped out that Peter Sellers (laughs) has a Hollywood career. Had a Hollywood (laughs) career. (laughs) That seems to be the way for so many people. Like someone drops out and they make the, the replacement is like, how could we ever see anyone else in the part? I think Hugh Jackman as Wolverine was a replacement. Yes, yeah, yeah. Doug Ray Scott was going to be Wolverine. Yeah. I'm sure there are other examples if I can, I can't think of them off the top of my head. (laughs) (laughs) I guess I hadn't really thought through whether you do the vocals first or the animation first because. Oh, you you animate to the the vocal track because Mm. yeah, you have to, you have to make the mouths move properly and stuff like that. Yes. Uh, And also like. I I, I didn't know that they didn't animate to a script, uh, that they didn't record to a script. That's, that's I mean, I said somebody's somebody's job was to type up the dialogue and hand sure, it to the yeah, actors yeah, yeah. so they knew what to say. But no, the creative process did not start, or even at any point, include a traditional script until wow. Jeffrey Katzenberg turned up at Disney in the nineties and started saying things like, uh, "I want to re-edit this," and someone said, "You don't edit animated films," and he said, "Well, why not? Give me the rushes." And then on Aladdin said, I want to see the script. And someone said, there isn't a script. And so someone then had to type up a script for Aladdin. Uh, (laughs) And and from that point on, it became more usual to conclude that phase of the development process by typing up a script that everybody could look at the way you would for any other movie. So how did, uh, with Aladdin then, because I'm just thinking of Robin Williams and that extraordinary performance where he clearly went off script but did they just oh yeah there's there's hours and hours and hours of robin williams improvisations that were recorded Uh, and i think for the 20th anniversary they they released just a a few minutes of some of the highlights yeah so he had a script and they would they would do a version on script and then they would just record for an extra 20 minutes while he (laughs) played Uh, and then in the edit of course you can jigsaw those bits together and, and keep only the gags that you want because in the when the genie first arrives in aladdin and he emerges from the lamp and he does all of the bit about no wishing for three wishes unos dos tres and he does all this stuff that's then beautifully animated so clearly that was them going yep we'll use this we'll use this we'll use this and then draw to it and phil harris as baloo and i assume in these two subsequent films as well improvised a lot of his dialogue Uh, when he was given the the lines for baloo i can't say this i'll just make something up (laughs) yeah I'll say something that's more bear-like. Yeah, exactly. Well, basically, I'll say something that's more Phil Harris-like. Yeah. Because he was a he was a well-known celebrity. It wasn't uh, quite okay. the stunt casting of Ron Williams, but people knew who Phil Harris was. Ah. Yeah, exactly. Was he, he was he was or? very much he's very much basically playing himself here, isn't he? Like he's yeah yeah. Stu, carry on with yes, your list. Yes, yes, yes. The next item on my list is uh, fight the rich, help the poor. This is a way more sort of dare I say it like Robin Hood, Robin Hood than I think we've seen previously in this series so we've only watched two other robin hood movies and there there was a lot uh between the last one and this one but yeah this is definitely the most sort of heroic i guess we've seen robin hood he's he's almost like superhero like where he's fighting evil and helping the downtrodden Um, can i posit an alternative uh, yes (laughs) you're right there's nothing wrong in that reading of it just something occurred to me watching because i don't know the phrase taxes is is said in this film possibly more than 
any other Robin Hood film that I can think is like taxes, 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 triple the taxes. You know, the word taxes comes up a lot. And then there's the everybody's in jail because they're taxing people too much. And I sort of wondered, is this like a Walt Disney capitalist kind of Republican conservative <laughs> allegory? That like we're all being taxed too much. I you know, mean, we're all you ending could, up. We you can't could definitely make that we reading. We can't have a proper This is definitely society. an anti-tax movie. <laughs> because, yeah, because, you know, big like literally that little kid, the little bunny kid, run screaming after someone yelling death to tyrants like that's literally yes. <laughs> what john wilkes booth yelled as he shot lincoln so I, I was just wondering if there's a potential reading into like this is what happens when you have big government little john why he's so weak and cruel it's because he believes in big government and excessive taxation <laughs> just a thought just putting that into the conversational mix no absolutely it's it's a valid reading i i hadn't it hadn't occurred to me although I de- the death to tyrants line did sort of leap out at me this time and i'm like yes. hmm, that's weird but anyway um, and also one of the scenes um, i'd forgotten just... was uh, little john robin hood having that conversation with each other about are we the bad guys i was yeah. quite it's say exactly the same thing. They <laughs> he literally, literally says, that. "Are we are we the baddies?" Doesn't he? Or he yeah. says, "Are we the bad guys?" He says, "Are we the good you guys, guys know or that the bad Mitchell guys?" Web sketch, I yes, absolutely. Yes. yes. Yeah. 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 But oh, like, that's yeah, was, my was... favorite Mitchell and Web sketch. That and um, bawdy nineteen seventies hospital. Mitchell and Web sketches. Oh, speaking of which, one question that occurred to me as I watched this film was, why was there never a Carry On Robin Hood? Because it seems so really, obvious. That seems a really uh, good point. And a little bit of Googling revealed that uh, there had, in fact, been planned to be one. It was one of several carry-on films that was considered and not put into production. They ended up doing carry-on Cowboy instead. Uh, but yes, Could, it was considered. Hmm. I think uh, Jim Dale would probably have been Robin Hood. Surely there's, I mean, there's, there's so many jokes on Merry Men alone. My You'd goodness. think, wouldn't you? <laughs> Yeah, but they, uh, the the way was clear for Mel Brooks, so I assume we'll be visiting this podcast at some oh, point. Yes. Oh, yes. Do this in the future. Oh, yes. Can I just tell you something on the carry-on? This is so strange you brought that up because my father has found the carry-on movies on YouTube. And right. the day that... The day that we record this, I saw them yesterday and he was telling me about how he has been watching carry-on movies on YouTube and how just, you know, loves the humour, just the silliness of it. And then he said today he was waiting to have a cataract surgery and because it was all running late, he just watched carry-on movies on his phone. (laughs) Anyway, well done, Dad. That aside, he said that he saw in like the 70s sometime, somewhere in Sydney, he saw Sid James and Eric Sykes do a two-man show somewhere in Sydney. And he said it was just the funniest thing you've ever seen. I can't remember if he knew the title of the show, but uh, that was a whole side to my father. I didn't realise that he was super into (laughs) probably what at the time was like the funny comedy show going around, one can only assume. Amazing. Um, I really don't know much more about Sid James than he was in a sitcom, I think, called Bless This House, which was on He was, yes, with Hattie Jakes. He just sort of complained about things a lot, I think. <laughs> was was maybe I, kind of... I always remember the uh, round the horn gag uh, where uh, I think it's Kenneth Horn uh, says, yes, Kenneth Williams, star of the Carry On films. That's C A R R I O N, Carry On films. <laughs> <laughs> um, yes, I haven't seen very many uh, Carry On films, but of course. Um, Are they big in Australia? I, I feel like they had a cult following. Uh, certainly, mm. certainly by the time we were around, they, 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 were, they were known as like this fun little oddity throwback sort of thing. It was the era where, to me as a as a kid, because we got all of these sitcoms and I was reminded of it recently because Peter Bowles from To The Manor Born just died. He did, and yes. Looked, 
I looked up to the Manor Born because that was one of my mum's favourites uh, when I was a kid. And I didn't realise it was only three series. It seemed to play here so often that I thought it was like a decade long running, you know, when you're a kid and you don't sort of remember the episodes and it just seemed like it was always on. But you had this um, era in British television where everything in the 70s just looked really bleak. So you had your your, your open all hours with Gur 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 Granville and mm-hmm. Ronnie Barker kept a little shop in sort of a dingy grey miserable looking street somewhere in London or you had your on the buses where everything was kind of grey and bleak and then you had your saucy booby girls with (laughs) (laughs) like the 70s in London just seemed like this very strange place where everything looked really grey and drab but then there were just always a lot of blonde girls with their boobs out. (laughs) <laughs> or you then had your highfalutin Penelope Keith style, oh, well, I know much better than you, oh, like posh people having adventures. Tom, as an Englishman, um, <laughs> was on behalf England of indeed, all England. Yes, on behalf of all England, what, what was going on? Because uh, in Australia in the 70s, and I obviously wasn't there, but the 70s in Australia had this big thing too with nudity where they did lots of shows where just people were getting their kit off because everything seemed very relaxed in the 70s. I don't know what happened. Maybe we got the moral majority in the 80s and everyone started getting a bit more tense. But in the 70s in Australian TV, it seems to just be like everybody nude all the time. <laughs> well, that was the era of uh, number 96, right? This is what I'm talking about. We had this yes. famous famous um, soap opera where someone had her boobs out and they had. I think they had like the first gay character on mainstream TV. I don't know that the depiction was necessarily handled delicately, but it it happened. I mean, that's representation, I guess. But yes, it was a strange, a strange time, the 1970s, Um, maybe everywhere. (laughs) Maybe it was just the decade. Censorship and the hate code and so on, which even though it was an American influenced English speaking cinema all over the world had been decaying in the 60s and was gone by the early 70s. But the carry on started in the late 50s. So in a way, I think they were still behaving as if there was censorship they were having to (laughs) dance around and avoid. And a little little glimpse of of female flesh here or there was still seen as incredibly shocking, where, of course, this this is still going on years after Deliverance. Uh, and yeah. The Exorcist. Yes. So uh, it doesn't seem quite as. Uh, and, and then the last few films, Carry On England, and then God Help Us, Carry On Emmanuel, which put a, uh, oh. a tombstone on the franchise for a, a, a couple of decades, are just like any excuse to have characters get their kit off because we've run out of jokes and we have to do something to try and get <laughs> bums on seats, be they clothed or not. <laughs> Was it shown in the kind of cinemas where men just came in wearing Macintoshes, but not much else? Uh, quite possibly. <laughs> Sorry for that diversion, but I just love talking about the strangeness that was British sitcoms of the 70s and 80s. Uh, I don't Stu- recommend doing Raven on Carry On. I think that would be uh, <gasps> a bit of a slog. <laughs> no, I, yeah. so, so you, you've said it out loud now, Tom, and now I'm going to have to do it. <laughs> Watching 23 basically identical films, which get steadily worse. Yeah, but you could maybe do a bit of a category, like, okay, best close-up of a set of boobs. Um, <laughs> best sort of, you know, oh, Kenneth Williams-style utterance. Best uh, innuendo for male genitalia. Yeah. God. How are you uh, going with the list, you? 
Uh, I was about to say, we're, we're nearly done. The, the last item on my list was just, uh, this better not awaken anything in me, just to reference the furry, the furry thing. Oh, uh, I see. And we'll, and that we'll leave it at that. So, um, so no, that was, that was my list. And, uh, yeah. It's, look, it's, it's a fun movie. I was very happy to revisit it, but it definitely isn't the strongest of the Disney films story-wise. And, How does it uh, compare to the earlier Robin Hood films that you've watched? We've talked a lot about Disney, but uh, well, I'd be keen to hear some context about other Robin Hood films. The Errol Flynn 1938 one, which I saw as a kid and loved, and to me it's kind of a gold standard. It just is that good. It's, it's, it's such a good mix of action, romance, adventure, crazy costumes as I said to Stu on the podcast, I've just never wanted more to be a gay man partying in Sherwood Forest. It just seems like the best time. Um, Merry and, man, and I, Natalie. Merry yeah, man. I keep Merry telling man. you. I, I just, but it just seems like the best fun ever. Like like when King Richard pardons them at the end, it's almost a tragedy because they have to leave the forest and their hedonistic party-going lifestyle. Um <laughs> And then the other one that we've done is the 1952, which is a Disney RKO live action, which was strange. I have had some feedback from people since I posted it that uh, on Twitter that some people actually really like it, which is great. But it's 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 got Richard Todd as Robin Hood, and he is no Errol Flynn. He's a and plank as of we've, wood. As we've discussed, <laughs> Errol Flynn, not a great man, not a great guy, not a great example to model your life after. But damn, he was a good Robin Hood. Like, <laughs> just really, really good on screen. And it, it's one of those things that those two things can and do exist simultaneously. Errol Flynn, bad man, so good on screen. Yeah, and Richard Todd is very, hello, I'm Robin Hood. This Robin Hood, this Fox Robin Hood, is way sexier and way more attractive. <laughs> like, you know, I could, if you had to choose between being a furry because of this Robin Hood and going off with Robin Hood from 1952, I'd be like, look, give me the suit. Uh, <laughs> I'm jumping in. Did I ever tell you guys the time that I encountered a, a furry in a, in a strange situation? Well, I, I think encountering a furry <laughs> is automatically a strange situation in real well, true. life. I just, go, I don't want to, I don't want to throw shade. I, I think this woman was quite odd, but I met this woman and I, for reasons that aren't quite important, I'll just sort of relay the furry aspect of it. She said she had a disability and I said um, she, she was talking about being on the disability pension but that her, you know, little job that she does as well was making costumes. And I went, oh, that's great. I'm in theatre. I love costumes. Um, <laughs> and she mm-hmm. went, I'll go and get my the thing I'm working on. And she comes back out wearing a, a dog's head. Wearing it. Wearing it and speaking and the mouth was moving with her lips. So as she spoke, the jaw flapped. And uh, so this was her specialty was building furry heads, I guess. I sort of worked it out, I think, but that actually you can keep on and talk, you know, as opposed to you go to Disneyland and see a, you know, character with a big Mickey Mouse just with a big head on and and they're behind a mesh screen, you know, this jaw, I'm, I don't know if I'm getting this through to you guys, but the jaw was moving as she no, it was connected yeah. to her mouth sometime or connected to her jaw. So it would flap as she spoke. And I sat there just going, I don't know what I'm seeing. I, <laughs> I, I, I don't know. <laughs> and I was, I'm very polite. If nothing else, I'm very polite. And I was like, oh, that's really amazing, like the work that you've put into that. And then I had to kind of go home and it was only later that I sort of worked out 
that that was a furry thing. I I guess I just <laughs> thought she was doing costumes for a hit new production of like Cats or something. I don't some, know. <laughs> some sort of kids review? Yeah, like, yeah that's yeah. right. And then I worked out that it was like, oh, that's that's a thing that people people do. Although that does raise the question. I mean, this is a this is a complete tangent. But why has mascot technology not evolved past the point of just having a giant immovable head? Like, what's what's going on there? The creeps that I got <laughs> watching this woman flap her. <laughs> oh, that's why her. you you hit the uncanny valley hard. Yes. <laughs> oh yeah. When it's clearly a dude in a suit and you can see that, you know, they've they just take the head off to have some Gatorade and then put it back on. <laughs> then you know It could also be related to the fact that those mechanisms are just going to go wrong. Uh, it reminds yeah. me of the, the television Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, uh, where they spent a fortune building an animatronic head for Mark Wing Davy to stick on his shoulders, uh, which worked pretty well in rehearsals, uh, at the end of which the battery had run down. Uh, so when the uh, cameras were rolling, it just sort of lolled in a not particularly convincing manner. <laughs> so, well, I can't imagine the situation that you'd be in and how awkward it would be if you already meet up for furries and your, you know, realistic dog head starts breaking yeah. down. <laughs> so, I'm sorry, I just have to, I just have to reboot my jaw. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm just going to turn it off and on again. Hang on. Yeah. Do you, do you have a USB cable I can borrow? <laughs> yes. I mean, um, if yeah, you this are isn't my scene, but I can, I can imagine that would uh, that would sap some of the spontaneity out of the encounter. <laughs> <laughs> but look, if you're a furry, call in. You know, let us know. Uh, just let us know because they are, get are angry. You really, are you really ringing that bell, Natalie? Is that where we're going here? Or? <laughs> hey, Stu. I think our future is in dressing up as <laughs> creatures and uh, podcasting about it. So I always, no, I knew, just, I always uh, knew it would come I to mean, this. Natalie, how many, that... how many cats are in your field of vision right now? Um, actually, and... none. Ha, 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 ha. But this is the thing. I like having cats. I don't want to dress up as one. It's. A, I want to make that distinction very clear. I don't. It is a different thing. I don't want to do cat behavior apart from maybe, you know, a bit of a cat pose in yoga. That's really where I, where, what I'm about. Um, you know, I'd look, I'd love to have the flexibility, dynamism, speed, and don't give a fuckness that cats have. That's why I admire them. Um, but I don't know that I want to kind of lick my genitals the way they do. Like I don't feel <laughs> I need that much flexibility. Um, I mean, don't knock it till you've tried it. Uh, that's true. Yes. <laughs> Well, I think uh, we, we're sort of coming to the end. I, I do have one question I want to ask Tom, but before I get to that, on a, on a different, actually, it's a question I want to ask both of you because you both got stakes in it. But we should rank this film, Stu. We've we've done this is a three out of three. Yeah, Where look, are you I mean, this, this is pretty. This is pretty easy for me. I think it goes fairly solidly in the middle. It's um, it's not yeah. toppling uh, uh, the Adventures of Robin Hood, uh, which is a all time classic, but it very easily jumps ahead of uh, the live action Disney Robin Hood, which incidentally, I don't know whether you guys have seen, but this movie is one of the many Disney properties that is now getting a sort of live action in quotes uh, remake. Um, this one isn't as far along as some of the others, but they're going to try to do this one, you know, updated Lion King style with like realistic animals, which I think it will just be awful to watch. Uh, oh my but God, no. It's happening, apparently, still. I, I, I checked just before we came on. I was like, is that, did I dream that? Is that happening? And no, they were, there was some talk back in 2020 that it, it was in production. And as far as I can tell, uh, <laughs> as as late as late last year, it was still sort of in pre, pre-production. So Okay. 
Just a thing I want to say, Lion King, the animals move the way animals move. Yes. You know, they move on four legs, you know, they fly like birds, etc. In the live action, quote unquote, I hated the way everyone kept calling it a live action. I'm like, no, it's just fancier animation. What are you talking yes, about? Yes, <laughs> it's incredibly um, sophisticated animation, yes. I don't know. I understand. It's like, oh, okay, it just doesn't look like a cartoon. It's still animation. But they still are moving. As I haven't seen it, but I assume they're still moving like animals move. In this movie, in Robin Hood, they're all on their hind legs like apes. Yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't know how it's going to work. Like I said, it's going to be an abomination on screen. It's going to look terrible. <laughs> like God is, made a mistake. If Disney uh, but, want to do Robin Hood, they should just do a Robin Hood, but with people characters. But animated, sure, exactly. But people. They could do a Frozen-style I mean, thing, but with, with Robin Hood. Like, that's open to them, you mm. know? And then people would go, people who love the Fox version will go, oh, I like the Fox version better. And then new kids can come in and go, we want to watch the people one. Like, to me, why don't they do that? And they can make a better story <laughs> and make a different I mean, these live-action remakes seem to be critic-proof. They just always seem to make money, no matter how dreadful yeah, they are. Yeah, people throw uh, millions of dollars at them. Somebody needs to sit some Disney executives down and make them watch Tom Hooper's Cats before this gets any further. <laughs> uh, have you seen that, Tom? Did you did you go? Did you oh, go yeah. There? Oh, yeah. You have? Uh, I saw it at the cinema, mate. Oh, my God. Oh was that because of, like, I don't know, were you press-ganged into it? Were you, were you, was it a bet? I or- am uh, I'm a bit older than you two, and uh, my parents took me to see Cats when it was first on in London with the original oh, wow. cast. And it was kind of a magical experience. The whole theatre, hmm. uh, the whole stage had been turned into this incredible junkyard set. Hmm. And the dancing was amazing and the songs were incredible and the performers were, were astonishing. And then we had the soundtrack album on cassette. And so it's a really important part of my childhood. So just as it's very difficult for you, Stuart, to be, uh, to be objective about this sure. film, it's very difficult for me to be objective about Cats. But Cats was incredibly successful. I think until Les Mis, it was the most successful musical mm. that the West End had ever yeah. seen. And I think the same on Broadway. And so what's happened in the last sort of 10 years prior to the movie coming out is the received wisdom has shifted. And the story now seems to be that Cats was, is, and always will be a bit shit. Uh, It doesn't have a proper story. (laughs) It's just a lot of different songs that don't amount to anything. And it's people dressed up as cats for fuck's sake. (laughs) And so there was talk of Disney doing an animated Cats movie, which might have made more sense. Mm. And then Mm. Tom Hooper, whose directing career appears to be on a, Fairly consistent nosedive. He's in direct uh, ever jail since now. the King's Speech. Yeah, uh, just each movie worse than more misguided and misjudged than the previous one. But uh, he he made money, I think, with Les Mis, and so uh, he was given the job of directing Cats. And every single decision <laughs> went into that movie <laughs> is. You were talking before about pulling down Lady Cluck's britches. You want to see a kind of photorealistic, oh. absolutely horrifying version of that, check out Rebel Wilson as Jenny Anydots. When she skins uh, herself, basically? Yeah. Like, oh, it's just God. the most appalling thing. Nothing, 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 nothing in that movie works. Uh, and if you want, I'll send you a link to a really, really good YouTuber called Sideways who goes into detail about just why the decision to try and record the vocals live on set makes even the music, the one thing which you'd think would be unimpeachable, <laughs> uh, struggle in the, the movie version. I did find that really interesting because I remember seeing something about how he did that in Les Mis and got people to sing live. And, of course, Anne Hathaway won the Oscar for it because she sort of cried her way through it and acted her <laughs> yes. heart out and bang, boom, there's your Oscar. But I don't... Well, the problem is, I mean, again, I, I know why. this because of this... 
this um, uh, this video, but it's sort of obvious when you think about it. If you are on a stage in front of an orchestra, there's a person whose job it is to keep the orchestra in time yep. and make sure everybody's hitting that beat. So if, as a soloist, you want to kind of play around with that a bit, you can sort of borrow a bit of time here, but the beat is going to carry on and you're going to have to catch up later. Mm. But if you're just singing live on set and the way they did it was they had a pianist with, and you had an earpiece, so you can have a, have a little conversation with each other. Yeah. And because of your acting performance, you want to slow down a little bit or speed up a little bit, then that's fine because the pianist can keep up with you. But then you have to take that recording mm-hmm. and you have to try and match a 70-piece orchestra to that recording you have made in which your tempo is all over the place. Right. That is not an easy thing to do and it is not an easy thing to make sound good. Yeah, and it, it was a very specific thing that they did. And I, th- I think, you know, whether or not it worked in Les Mis, like, like it, it, it was obviously everything was set up to sort of support that idea. But in Cats, it was just like, oh, well, I did it in, in the last musical that I filmed, so I'll, I'm going to do it here. And it's like, no, that makes no sense here. You're not going for gritty realism here. You've got crazy, <laughs> like, you know, ha- horrifying half half man, half cat creatures <laughs> <laughs> that would stalk the... The nightmares of Lovecraft himself. <laughs> but yeah, nothing's nothing's been thought through. From you know the the, the cats look ridiculous. Uh, a lot of people complain about the the scale constantly being off. But the problem is that cats and humans don't have the same proportions. Mm. Cats' heads are way bigger compared to their bodies than humans are. So something which is the right scale when you see a human cat hybrid abomination in a long shot will look ridiculous in a close-up. And so that's why the scale, because it's an impossible problem to solve. So if you just abandon yeah. realism and do it like it is on the stage, it all looks fine. But as soon as you try well, and make it realistic. That's the point. That's what I was expecting them doing a, a movie is that they were going to do the show and they'd be cats, and they, but they would be people in costume as cats and you just suspend your disbelief because... I wasn't the fondest when I saw Cats. I found it confusing as a teenager, but I got the spectacle of it. Like there's no doubting the energy and the the ferocity with which everyone performs and the songs get people. Like I can appreciate that. But then to go, oh, no, 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 they're, they're real cats. <laughs> they're, they're people, but they're cats. And I was thinking when that sort of came out that that's how they were doing it, I was like, I don't, I don't, what? Just, just yeah, do I, the I don't think this is going to work. <laughs> Yeah, just do the musical. Like, there's no shame in that. But I noticed I just looked up Tom Hooper's Wikipedia page and I looked under film and the last entrance is Cats. There's no, you know, in production. He did some work on his Dark Materials, apparently, same year, 2019, but there's no working on this. Yeah, yeah, they threw him in director jail and threw away the key. Wow. He's not allowed out for a long time. He'll have a comeback, though. They always do. There'll be some small indie film that he'll do and everyone will go, he's redeemed himself from Cats, etc. He hasn't made that many movies, so I'm, I'm surprised that they gave it to him, but I suppose it was on the back of Les Mis. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. he was the musical guy. Mm. I wonder if they'll do more musicals. You know, that I mean, they've, they've, they've just done West Side Story and it's up for yeah. Oscars, oh God, yeah. so yes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> they're, they're very expensive and they don't make money. West Side Story didn't make any money and The Heights didn't make any money. Tick, Tick, Boom, really? I don't think, made any money. These are all, I think, terrific films. Yeah, Tick, it Tick, sucks. Boom they're great. <laughs> phenomenal. But, uh, yeah, no one's, no one's going to see them. The question I wanted to ask both of you, given that you are both Doctor Who experts, uh, I have seen reports oh. today that 
Hugh Grant is in talks to play Doctor Who. Now, is this just some wild masturbatory fantasy of Twitter or am I, you know, what, what have you read this? Have you heard of this? Is there, what's, what's going on? Doctor Who experts? He has publicly said he was offered it in 2004 and turned it down and regrets that. Uh, so that really? A means this is plausible, but also B means that anyone who was looking just to fill column inches could half remember that or do a bit of Googling mm. and come up with this. There's been nothing official from Bad Wolf or the BBC, and until there is, everyone's just guessing. Yeah, I can't even figure out where this has even come from, because it just seems to have been a, a, a news report saying, oh, he might be? Like, there, there's nothing firm, is there? Like, uh, unless I've missed something. Like, like it's not based no, on, the, on anything. There are quite a lot of rumours floating about that Russell may be doing something eccentric for the anniversary because it sounds like he's not going to be able to do a full season with his 14th Doctor before the 60th anniversary rolls around. Mm. And so therefore he might be doing something. So that's where the David Tennant rumour comes from. So we might be seeing like an an unseen 10th Doctor adventure first. uh, Or some kind Mm. of other interim Doctor, which could be somebody like Hugh Grant, who probably wouldn't sign up for three years but might do an episode or two. And then we get the proper 14th Doctor after the anniversary special. Something like that may be going on. But as I say, all of this is just guesswork and speculation until we hear something official from Bad Wolf or the BBC. Nobody knows. But of course... I wouldn't be averse to to Hugh Grant. He's matured into a fabulous character actor over the last Mm. several years. He'd make a fine Doctor. And of course, something that hasn't been mentioned at all in any of the coverage, he has played the Doctor before in The Curse (laughs) of Fatal Death. Yep. Yeah, and, but the, the the phrase that they're using alongside this is that Doctor Who is going to get a Marvel style cinematic universe makeover. Well, that's which... that's from comments from RTD. Like he's he's sort of been on record as saying, you know, he, when he when he relaunched Doctor Who in two thousand five, he was very much of the opinion that it should be like a Buffy style. That that's what he took as his model for the TV sort of side of things, up to and including like including spin off shows and things like that. And he's sort of coming in with that energy again. He says, there's no reason why Doctor Who can't be its own universe, which I'm a little bit skeptical of. Like, I, I hope he has some good ideas for those other shows that he wants to do. Like, there's there's spin-off ideas and things that he wants to sort of set up. It could get exhausting in, a, in very quickly, but, you know, at least he's coming in with a lot of energy and ideas, I think, is the is the point. Is there a big Doctor Who kind of watch, you know, again, Tom, culturally, it is... Uh... It is your bag. Is 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 England on alert? I know. I, <laughs> I know. I sound incredibly patronising. Shops, shops are closed. Yeah. Uh, no, no one's leaving their homes. It's kind of like <laughs> lockdown all over again because nobody wants to miss the announcement when it comes. <laughs> I, I like, seen it was like that everywhere in the English speaking world. But maybe it's just here. <laughs> it's like the Queen will die and everyone will say, "Yeah, yeah, yeah." But who's the new Doctor? <laughs> yes. Well, thank you both very much for joining. Uh, well, you know, Tom, thank you for joining Stu and I, I should say, uh, on uh, the latest Robin On. Um, thank you for your deep insights into the world of Disney. I had no idea about much of that. So hopefully other people learnt some things too. Where can people get your book again? Uh, anywhere books are sold, uh, Amazon if you like, or you can get it from somewhere that pays their tax. Uh, any uh, high street <laughs> shop. Taxes, taxes. Should be, able, taxes. should be able to order it for taxes. you. Indeed. I was going to say, and how is your Trek a Day project going? Yes, I'm, I've just started on the animated series, which I've never seen even a single frame of. Oh, wow. Uh, so that's fascinating. Uh, 22 episodes of that that kind of sit in between the original three year run and then the movies, which started in the late 70s. Uh, so yes, very, very interesting stuff. So for anyone who doesn't know, I figured out that if I watch an episode of Star Trek 
every single day. And I start on New Year's Day 2022 and I count the movies as one episode. Then I will be watching the last episode of Enterprise on Christmas Day 2023. So that's what I'm doing. And you can read about that by following me on Twitter at Tom Selensky or reading my blog, which is at uh, which is tomselensky.co.uk slash blog. Highly recommend doing both of those things. You can also call in to us. Stu is at Disco Stu on Twitter and I am at Girl Clumsy. We're particularly keen this week to hear from the furry community, so reach (laughs) out. Um, I may have made a bed there that I don't want to lie in, but uh, we'll we'll, we'll figure that out I don't think it's the composition of the bed that's the issue. I think it's the uh, (laughs) other inhabitants. And uh, facebook.com slash Natalie's Throne is the Facebook page. And, of course, a special and magical shout-out to my patrons over at uh, www.patreon.com slash girlclumsy. You are the wind beneath my wings. Thank you so much for uh, everything you do to help keep this motor running. Back to the race car analogy from the start of the podcast. See? See, we circle back. We circle back. (laughs) It all comes together in a nice loop. So until next time, when I believe we're doing Stu, Robin and Marion. Yes, I think that's the next one. Which is Sean Connery, Tom. It's Sean Connery. Oh, yes. Fascinating. As Robin Hood. Never seen it. Audrey Hepburn. uh, It's amazing. Yeah. So I'm I'm looking forward to that one. So I'm looking forward to all of them because it's all Robin Hood. Which I like. Until then, I guess our sign-off is we'll see you in... See you around Sherwood Forest. Forest. (laughs) 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 (la